This is Designing the Robot Revolution, where we explore how design, data, and automation are changing our lives. Today, we're diving into innovation, trying to understand what makes innovation possible and what challenges there are for companies to do so successfully. My name is David Griffith-Jones, and with me as always, I have my co-host, Jacob Magnol. You could actually develop something in six months that would have taken six years, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. The distance is not so much in time then, but in how different is it from the core offering? This is Carl Henriksen, an innovation and digital transformation leader who has been helping companies with innovation for more than 20 years. Carl's innovation journey began when he joined camera company Hasselblad's imaging software division. He worked on innovation projects for both digital and analog photography and soon found himself getting deeper and deeper into the process of innovation itself. We sat down with Carl to talk about what it means to be innovative and what we can do to make our companies succeed in their innovation efforts. Ideally, I would say systematically working with which dimensions you could use to bring a new thing to market and create value. So it would be those different those different dimensions around the brand, around the service, around everything that creates the, the customer experience and the value, and then how that connects to technology. So working with things like uh, service blueprints, for example, and also I think visualizing this to the organization, create maps and uh, visualizations about how this makes sense and what are the things that you need to do for it to work. Because, for example, uh, innovations that come from machine learning and AI, if you want to really create value and sell a new kind of service, it's not only to get the technology working, it's also to get the business around it to work. And that's not easy in itself. I mean, takes a lot of uh, um, different kinds of disciplines to get that to work, even when you have something that works from the technical point. And then the next question is, what is new? Because yeah. what is new is uh, depending on your uh, perspective. So it could be new to the organization, for example. Then it could be new, even though it might be, some, you know, a way of working or technology that has been in another field for decades, yeah. perhaps. I don't know if you've seen this, everything is a remix. Yeah, I remember you referring that to me. You put me yeah. in, in. Yeah. And I really believe that is true, especially now that uh, because of the infinite combinations of things, by making new combinations of existing technology, suddenly it passes a certain threshold or is at the right place at the right time. Mm that it becomes an innovation, but it is not necessarily an invention. Yeah, And I think that is the thing that is uh, the, the mistake that so many are doing is they're confusing the two. A new technology enables new things to happen potentially, but it might be too expensive or it might not be able to be bought in the same way as it traditionally was. The schoolbook example is Xerox. One of those machines, the list price when they were introduced was the same as, I think, uh, a brand new Ford Thunderbird. So no one would buy those and put them in the office. The inventor, he, he went to Kodak, thinking Kodak will certainly understand this. And uh, they said, no, it's too expensive. And 
there is no market. No one is making copies in an office. And then he went to IBM and they said the same thing. And then he went to General Electric and they they say the same thing. And it was only when he came up with a service model for the Xerox machine that it became successful because then it was possible to buy, you know, to buy the value at a reasonable cost. It was perceived as a reasonable cost, at least, <laughs> because it was actually quite expensive. But the behavior then started uh, happening that paved the way for, for office copying. Right. So uh, to begin with, it was actually they they by creating a service in addition to the hardware, that's how it made it something that companies could look at doing instead of a full up front. It was only then it was viable, mm. yeah. Uh, and, and the story is also fun, I think, because the inventor of xerography or dry copying, he was a patent attorney or patent, and he had rheumatism. So his hands were really aching, you know, and... Part of his job was making these copies of patent drawings. And at the time, you need to you know, walk into a dark room with all of these heavy piles of, of drawings and make the copies. And it was a pain to him, literally. Uh, and he was also uh, you know, a tinkerer. So in his basement, he, he made the first Xerox copy in, in his basement lab. And then, because he was also a patent attorney, he knew very well how to protect it, but there was no no market. And it's interesting also, I think, that, you know, Kodak is one company who should understand that because their business model was actually based on service rather than a product initially. They had a product, but for it to really explode, they had the... The camera itself as a loss leader, uh, they were really, really cheap. But you would send in the entire camera. It was a simple, very simple camera with 12 glass plates that fell down when once you took a shot. So you could take 12 shots with right. a camera like that. Uh, and it was sent in, the entire camera was sent in because it was very cumbersome to make uh, copies at home uh, or I mean, you needed a, a proper small dark room lab, whatever, but they understood that it was a good idea to uh, streamline this so customers would send in the entire camera and they would get standardized prints back. So it was a service model already from the beginning. What kind of year would that be approximately? That was 1880s, 90s, oh, wow. I think. And that was also the way that Hasselblad started was that they okay. they got the, the license to sell Codex products in, in uh, Scandinavia. But how do you prepare a company to be innovative? How do you prepare it for innovation? Well, get the right people on board <laughs> uh, is, is, of course, uh, essential. And maybe also, I think, to be um, throw some old truths overboard, <laughs> like uh, what are the KPIs that you are basing your reward systems on. If you're basing it purely on selling a certain amount of vehicles or ball bearings or robots or whatever it is that you're selling, then it will be very, very difficult to create value in other ways than selling those uh, items, right? So the KPIs, it's this old boring thing, what gets measured gets done and people are incentivized to do a certain thing. So even if you have all of these uh, shiny new initiatives about 
developing new things and being innovative. If KPIs are still in place that are referring to what worked historically, then it will still be very difficult to create value based on, on uh, for example, a service model. You see lots of companies in their marketing material, in their kind of annual reports, will use the word innovative. We are an innovative company. Is that something that you've seen become more and more a word that has become used more and more? If you go back 10, 15 years, Carl, is, was people talking about it as much then? Or has this is this a new obsession with the word innovation? Maybe, yeah, maybe it's a, a, a bit of a fad, the, the overuse of the word. Uh, I've seen, I, I think we've seen it happening uh, in the past with other things like yeah, digital transformation, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's also a good thing that companies have actually come to understand that they need to listen more to customers. Yeah. And that's and that's a good thing. Who who would you look at, and who do you admire as an organization who are genuinely innovative? Actually, I mean, if you look at it from a historic perspective, I think Husqvarna uh, is quite amazing in a way. I mean, yeah. they they were challenged with they make made weapons. Uh, once upon a time, they're really old, aren't they? They they back back in like the 1600s. They're one of the oldest companies in Sweden, Husqvarna. Yes, yes, and uh, they made weapons, and then the the demand for that was uh, reducing. And then they thought, hmm, what could we use our competences for around uh, metal working and, and casting and drilling and all that kind of thing? And they figure out that hmm, we could make stoves. Yeah, we could make uh, small engines, which they still do. And now, of course, decarbonization and electrification, servitization and, and digital, they are moving ahead on that. Another company I thought about that has made a, a fantastic development over the years is, is uh, Cytex, which is uh, an Israeli technology company. They, they started out making control systems for textile machines. And then almost overnight, or I mean, in the company time span anyway, uh, like over, over only a few years, almost all of their customers went bankrupt because the textile industry moved from Europe, Southern Europe, to Asia. Right. And the Asian companies had their own suppliers. And then they found themselves very close to becoming out of business. And uh, this was in the 70s. And because there were no graphical user interfaces or graphical hardware, they created their own graphical hardware for making for making uh, textile patterns and programming uh, these machines. And then they realized, hmm, there is actually a graphic design, an emerging graphic design uh, business. Okay, let's go into that. And they started making systems and workstations for printed graphics and for uh, they, they made scanners, they made digital camera backs and so on. And then they saw that diminish because of the commoditization from desktop publishing. Hmm. And then they went into uh, video and CAD. Right. So they've been constantly evolving to the next thing, you know? Yeah, something I picked from both of the companies you've given there are um, 
being able to look at what you as an organization have at your disposal. You gave the example of Husqvarna have certain capabilities for weapon making. Mm-hmm. How can that be pivoted to other areas? So the ability to look at what you have on your play field, so to speak, and be nimble about how you deploy that. The other thing that you spoke with both of them is about a market that changes suddenly. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's also uh, going back to what you were talking about earlier about the users and the, the customers, having them in focus. And I guess that is one aspect of that. The customers actually changed and these companies were able to to accommodate that by pivoting their their business. How has that changed the ability for companies to understand their customers? First, about the, the looking at the customer's needs, I think it's equally important to look at the company's capabilities because a lot of people are talking about outside in, and I love that. It's fantastic. But there must, must also be uh, will and interest from the organization that they could feel comfortable that oh, this is something that we might do because it is related to capabilities that we have. Otherwise, it becomes very alien to them. So I think it's as important it is with outside in, it's also important with inside out and join up those so that you are looking at how does we see new demands uh, and, and needs from the customers. Okay, so how do these new, newly discovered perhaps or emerging needs, how do they fit with the capabilities inside the company that make sense so that you have uh, at least uh, some kind of competitive advantage or that you that there is some uh, competence or asset that you are working from. The other question about how companies can understand their customers better, I mean, there is so much potential value from analytics and from deploying solutions with the customers that constantly feeds back uh, useful information that you can base your decisions on. But but it's also needed perhaps to to imp- interpret that and make that either visual or, or tell a story about it because just looking at the data doesn't make you any happier because, <laughs> mm. <laughs> because I mean, look at how much data is collected by each vehicle each day, but still it is a, a difficult situation for, for many manufacturers to make sense of it. And, and that uh, should be a part of innovation, I think. Is it easier or harder to be transformative? Like invention, big things. Is that easier or harder now than it has been, or is it just the same? Good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, it is more difficult, of course, for an established company because you have the, the inertia that comes from the past success. It is maybe, it, it is rare that companies are able to do that, uh, jumping the curve, um, unless they are r- really in a terrible situation and they don't have a choice. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think many companies are evaluating and, and doing very good work uh, investigating what innovations they might do, but are unsuccessful because of this uh, inertia, because, um, because it's riskier, costlier, and you might 
be going from a stable and profitable situation to one that is unstable and uncertain. Uh, I think a good example, if you would come back to Xerox once again, then, uh, you know, Xerox was funded by this company called Halide, which was a, a film and paper and chemicals uh, company. So it made sense because they understood that this would be the future of copying. The xerography that was based on plain paper and, and carbon uh, toner would, be, would replace uh, their chemical business. But then uh, they made so much money from all of this that they were able to set up the Palo Alto Research Center in California. So they were based originally, the, the mother company was based on the East Coast. And then they set up this in, in California because that's where all of the interesting stuff was happening with Silicon Valley. And they came up with that, oh, we need, we actually make this desktop metaphor for an office uh, and we make uh, the Xerox Alto, which was the first personal computer using a desktop metaphor. And they invented the mouse and the laser printer and the uh, local network. They totally failed to sell that to the management. They thought that this is something so futuristic and impossible for us to go into. In, in desperation, they you know, invited other people to come and look at it, hoping that maybe it will catch on with someone else. And then Steve Jobs uh, came along, of course, and discovered all that and, and uh, uh, you know, copied it all into Macintosh. You mentioned uh, a way back talking about jumping. It's difficult for companies to jump ahead of the curve. And it reminds me about, we talk about horizons of innovation. There's horizon one and two and three, I think. Could you, what, what, what are the horizons of innovation and, and what's, because I know you've worked actually in all of them. Yeah. What's your pre, where, what space do you enjoy most working in, in which horizon? Yeah, there, there was, uh, I mean, this model was uh, proposed by McKinsey, I think, 10 or 15 years ago, something like that. And I think it was true then. The idea then is Horizon 1 is the current business and Horizon 2 is pushing that. And Horizon 3 is something that may be very different from the core business of today. And uh, I think that was true at the time because it took so long to develop new solutions. But now, especially in digital uh, and with cloud technology and with uh, access to venture capital, it doesn't become so much horizons in time, but horizons in distance from the core, rather. Because you could do something in, in if you have the right money, the right people, and the right technologies in place, you could actually develop something in six months that would have taken six years, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. The distance is not so much in time then, but in how different is it from the core offering? Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. It's interesting, isn't it? That the speed the speed of transformation is just getting quicker and quicker. Um, and things that were once seen as fundamental, like... I'm reluctant to mention it, but uh, currency and cryptocurrencies and that the whole financial system might actually be transformed in the space of, what, two years? Even if, if you speak to some of the moon boys, yeah. but, but even if even if you see it as a things, so not only is the speed of um, increased, but what you thought was solid, what you thought were kind of fundamental 
actually yeah. now has been exposed as can be completely turned on its head. Yeah, like going to an office uh, for regular hours and versus digital ways of meeting and, and doing business. Do you think meeting digitally affects our ability to, first of all, I guess, work together, but second of all, innovate together? Oh, yes. Uh, I think it accelerates it in an amazing way. I mean, the the, the threshold of uh, getting together and working on something has diminished a lot and is diminishing. Uh, we are still social creatures, so we need... Uh, you know, to get to know each other. But I think that digital tools is uh, accelerating that. Yeah. How, how do, everyone talks about um, a culture of ex- accept, it's acceptable to fail, um, fail fast, cliche. Um, I find that organizations will maybe adopt that language. But when you look at, if you analyze how they're actually behaving, it is the opposite of a culture. So help an organization become more comfortable with failing. You know, you have different focuses in different uh, stages of evolution. So I think you should focus on the learning uh, when you have these emerging and new uh, technologies, whereas, uh, and then failure. Uh, can be okay because that is also a learning. Um, whereas if you you do not want people to experiment wildly about uh, the, the welding parameters for cars on the production line, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you should have that variation when you are working with innovation, which is the opposite. So, so and in the middle, uh, it is more lean and agile. That is something I'm going to jump on. Here, here you're bringing up something that we've been discussing. So how does, is lean and agile a way to innovate? I, I, I think it's good. Uh, and, and there are other parallels as well, like in, in innovation management, which is a quite new discipline that there is now a terminology that we can use. And there is an ISO standard, which sounds, sounded maybe counterintuitive to many at first. Uh, But you want to have variation, but in a controlled way and not varying all parameters at once because then you cannot uh, draw any conclusions from experiments if you're varying all parameters at once, right? How is having an ISO standard because um, what was it? Was it innovation management ISO standard came out a couple of years ago, and uh, there was quite a bit of buzz. How, how has that helped? I think it has helped in the way that there is no now uh, common vocabulary. Just as with agile, agile was frowned upon because because it was new and because it broke with the, this perception of that you should have a plan from the very beginning of a project rather than that it is evolving. And in many kinds of projects, it needs to be evolving. And the same with innovation. There was not a a common language to use. Like just as we use in in, uh, programming, we have have a word for something called a function or a variable or everything has terms so that we can talk about it in the same way. And same with innovation and with agile. 
that we, we now all can uh, agree on what is uh, a sprint. Why do we do sprint planning? What is a backlog? And so on. So uh, I think that uh, helps. As someone working as an innovation leader or innovation manager, who are the who are the stakeholders you're most commonly engaging with at an organization? I, I try to find people who, who are constantly in contact with the customers to reach customers and also distill what they know or think they know about customers. When you say think they know, can you elaborate on that? They might see only a, a thin piece of the through the interfaces that they own. They can see some customer needs, but the needs that they see are only related to solutions that the company currently provides. Uh, and they might have the customers might have other needs that are filled by other companies. And they, that is blind to them. So therefore, it's very useful uh, to talk directly to the customers, not only taking that as uh, truth, the truth that is collected by the people in, inside the organization. You've been listening to Designing the Robot Revolution. We asked Carl if he has any suggestions for great books on the topics we've discussed here today, and we'll share links to these in the show notes. All music in this episode was performed by Vendela.